Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I think you have to look at things positively and look at your own agency in that. And my sense of agency is that I can lead and I can do, um, and I've been trusted to do something that's really making a difference uh, in that important area. And so I can't do anything else but be optimistic in my view. Those are the wise words of Stan Capan, CEO of Solar Victoria. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Stan. Before we kick off today, I just want to express my gratitude to you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in each week and supporting Humans of Purpose as we close in on 150 episodes. I'm especially grateful to those of you who have chosen to actively support the podcast by becoming Patreon supporters. So a special thank you goes out to Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. Your support is much appreciated and it helps us to keep posting up quality content each and every week. If you want to join our Patreon community and support the growth of the podcast, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. Today, I share with you my conversation with Stan Capan, CEO of Solar Victoria. This was a great opportunity to learn from one of the brightest and most insightful leaders in the Victorian public service. Stan has forged an impressive career across law reform, regulation, health and safety, IT, and more recently, environment and sustainability. He's now leading the work of Solar Victoria, who are helping Victorians to take control of their energy bills, tackle climate change, and provide a cleaner, better future for all. We recorded this episode a few days before the Christmas break on that horrible, bone-dry, 44-degree day here in Melbourne, and it seemed like the perfect stage had been set to discuss climate change and the Victorian government response. I think it's a great testament to Stan, his giving spirit and willingness to step forward to share his wisdom for the benefit of others that he was able to and happy to make the trip across town in horrible conditions to sit down and record for the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation with Stan and I think you will too. Stan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it so much. It's 43 degrees outside. <laughs> Feels like a bad joke that I'm chatting with the CEO of Solar Victoria, but I'm glad you could make it and that you haven't fried. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so why don't we begin? I'd love to hear a little bit about your story, your, both your career and personal story. Yep. Um, I've heard you know so much about you, so many good things from friends and obviously followed your career with uh, much enthusiasm, but nothing like hearing it from the horse's mouth. So, Oh, thanks, Mike. That's really generous. Uh, look, uh, I grew up in Melbourne, lived in Melbourne uh, all my life, but I've done a variety of jobs. Uh, I started as a lawyer and uh, and really loved that for a few years and um uh, really aspired to be a lawyer, really enjoyed that, but then found that actually uh, what I really enjoyed was making a difference. And I've been able to do that in a variety of different roles, predominantly in the public sector, uh, but also in the NGO sector. And I still have a very active board life in the NGO sector as um, as chair of Info Exchange, but predominantly in the Victorian public service. Um, I've worked at uh, WorkSafe Victoria for about 10 years. I was head of sustainability Victoria for for eight uh, and um, did a variety of things in between. I, I, I led a review of the EPA's compliance and enforcement uh, activity back in 2009, I think. Uh, yeah, 2000, no, 2010. Uh, and uh, loved the sustainability Victoria uh, role. But one of the, the best things about my last 12 months there was, was setting up the solar homes program for the government. Um, and uh, we set up Solar Victoria as a brand. And now we've just, um, on the 1st of July, transferred that to the Department of Environment here in Victoria. 
that's incredibly exciting and such a concise uh, less than one minute summary of your life today, which is just incredible. Um, permit me to deep dive um, sure. a little bit. So I want to know a bit about when you fell in love with working on the environment. Yeah. So it was probably going back to about 2007. I did a, uh, an advanced management program at, uh, at Melbourne Business School. I've, I've had a, a variety of fantastic employees who've always supported me to develop myself and my leadership. Um, and for me, learning is, is a key part of what I love doing every day and in every job. Um, so I was doing the advanced management program. Um, there was a couple of things that happened. One was that um, uh, one of our skin syndicate projects was working with a company, uh, a publicly listed company at the time called CO2 Australia on a branding campaign around carbon offsets. I kind of immersed myself in that area. But also it was at the time of the um, Inconvenient Truth, so the Al Gore movie, uh, then about, you know, sort of 06, 07. Um, and I got to meet um, a professor called Graham Pearman, who's a climate scientist. And the combination of those things just kind of uh, kept playing on my mind about you know, I really want to be a part of this and I want to watch it from the sidelines. I didn't know how that was going to happen. Uh, but for through a variety of, uh, I, I guess, um, good fortune, as well as, you know, a, a career path that had kind of led me to a few opportunities, I got to do the work at the EPA after I left um, uh, WorkSafe and I was absolutely convinced this is what I wanted to do. Um, and then complemented that, I, I went and did a climate change course at, at the London School of Economics Um uh, and uh, obviously got the role at Sustainability Victoria, but I just kept kept feeding that passion and kept kept um, wanting uh, wanting to do uh, that part of you know what what has turned out to be a new career. Perhaps I'll ask you a bit about um, how to make that choice and how to propel yourself at something and tackle it uh, with sort of a resolve of mind because I, th I feel like there's a situation where many people in a career path will observe things from the balcony that um, it's like an itch that you may want to scratch and not scratch it. You've, yeah. you've been someone who's chosen to throw yourself uh, seemingly at the issue. Um, what, what kind of gave you that, that impetus or drive and how did you execute that shift into the space? Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's certainly been easier in retrospect to look at the career and say, well, it, it meandered a bit, but it's all in, in one direction. It wasn't like that at all at the time. And I can remember distinctly speaking to my colleagues, um, as you are, I'm an alumnus of um, the Williamson uh, Community Leadership Program. I'm very proud of that fact and, and still contribute there. And in 09, at what was then called a, a closing uh, retreat, uh, we were talking about, you know, where are you heading? Where do you see yourself heading over the future? And I, I must say that I was uh, all over the place. I knew I wanted to do something in the environment. I probably said something along the lines of what you um, what you asked me for, about just before, but I didn't see where that might head. And I also didn't know that it would be a, a professional career, you know, whether it would be an NGO or a board that I'd contribute or whether I'd volunteer somewhere. I hadn't kind of formed that uh, view. And I think sometimes you've got to just go with the opportunities and um, – even though I've done some things that at the time seemed really scary, I've always thrown myself, um, and particularly when people have said, you know, you'd be good at this, you should go for it. Even when I, I had that trepidation, that just sort of voter confidence from from friends and colleagues or mentors uh, has meant a lot to me, and I've just kind of, you know, thrown myself at things that others might shy away from because they're too complex or, you know, nah, have some risk around them. Um, but I've just kind of thrown myself at that. And, and I've always been rewarded. You know, there, there are things that I've stuffed up, there's no doubt. But, um, you know, I, I feel like I've, looking back on a career of 25 or so years, I've done some things that I'm really proud of as well. 
It's an interesting um, point there. There's a few things in there actually, but one of the first things I think as people we are sense makers, we're pattern makers, and I think uh, we like to make things linear when sometimes they're not linear, and it's part of our hindsight bias to look back and say, oh, well, there's a really clear pattern here, much like when you look back at your LinkedIn or your CV and say, oh, well, that's really obvious what you're doing there, but take yourself back to that time. You were just another person with a a multitude of – confusing and uh you know um forces of pull and push and just trying to work it out on the journey yeah absolutely and and look i i see it as a theme and that theme it took me a long time to to work out why did i love the law why did i study law why did i go in and be a lawyer i was an advocate at the aboriginal legal service um i was a very nervous public speaker at the time but i I put the effort in to build that skill and i still draw on that every day um and, and and i love it but really actually if you look at what are four or five very different roles it was always about making a difference um and uh, i've just got a heap of passions and a a heap of things that uh sort of get my goat a bit um that i feel like i I need to do something about and um i've been really fortunate that i've had an opportunity to do that both in board life as well as um through my professional career and it sounds like um, a key catalyst was putting yourself in situations of discomfort and also supporting yourself with a network of people who share that desire for discomfort for growth uh, absolutely, yeah, and I've been really fortunate to have had both of those those things. Yeah, and so what kind of um, I, mean, I saw just with a strong legal background, what kind of mechanism or framework does law give you to help you navigate your your, your career, your thinking, your decision making along the way? Yeah, look, I, I probably still think a bit like a lawyer. I've tried to untrain myself <laughs> out of that, but um, now I just kind of assume that it's an it's an asset, and it very much has been. You know, that sort of uh, that ability to digest um, huge amounts of information and to synthesise, um, uh, that kind of forensic looking at things from both um, but from both perspectives, so being able to make ma- maintain an argument um, that is um, from either a perspective and I can argue them equally, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what my kind of personal views are, to be dispassionate, as I said, the public speaking and advocacy, m- mounting an argument um, in that context, um, I still draw on every day. But also that ability to hone in, so from big picture, um, and, and not all lawyers can do that, but I was always uh, kind of thought of myself as a pretty strategic lawyer uh, as well, particularly from a social change and, you know, a test case perspective. I did that in a couple of different uh, roles throughout my legal uh, career, in, including at um, WorkSafe. So I always took this kind of strategic view of um, of litigation, for instance, rather than the forensic detail, but I could do a bit of both. So you can kind of find the gaps in, a, in an argument or in, in – you know, a, a, a document or something like that, but also being able to look at what are we trying to achieve here. Um, and uh, in that uh, respect, you know, I, I ran some cases while I was at WorkSafe um, and indeed in, in other roles um, that have made a real difference. And so that kind of just reminded me, um, and probably I didn't think about it again in, in, in hindsight at the time, but now looking back at it, it just reminded me of what I think is kind of the transformative nature of the law. And that was what, what drove me to study law and be a lawyer um, in the first place, that kind of romantic uh, view that you can you change public opinion, you can change laws, you can change society based on how the law is interpreted or what legislation is written or how courts interpret. Um, and I kind of made that um, that connection later, but um, at the time, you know, that was really important. And I, and I still think, you know, that there's a, a legal advice that I'm reminded of um, uh, that was uh, issued a couple of years ago by Noel Hotley, a, a senior counsel in, in Sydney on climate change risk and the duty of um, directors to take account of climate um, risk. 
it's a, a monumental piece of work um, from a very commercially astute um, lawyer, but I think is changing opinions around the board table and is certainly has certainly got people on notice that the law will be interpreted eventually that says, you know, directors have an obligation to take this into account and if they don't, that somebody is actually going to, um, to be held to account for that eventually. Uh, you could be forgiven for leaving this area given the amount of pessimism that sort of pops up uh, to and fro in climate change, believing the science, uh, following the deba- debate and most importantly translating the debate into practical solutions. But you appear to be the the optimist uh, or the balanced rational lawyer optimist. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a bit about kind of what keeps you sort of thinking positively about the space and you've got a huge agenda now at um, Solar Victoria to fulfil maybe in, in that lens as well, sort of some of the things that you're planning on doing What's uh, what's the state of play for you at the moment in your thinking here? Yeah, look, I think you have to be optimistic. I think people are looking for hope. Um, And as a leader of an organisation that has a really important mission, um, as a leader of um, people who are very dedicated and committed to to an issue that is actually quite a frightening one, if you think about it, the sense of urgency we all have, um, the the science around uh, what it is that we're doing to the earth – if you're objective about that and if you take it um, seriously, it gets you down, right? Um, but I don't think there's any other way to approach it and make a difference because uh, you could sit there and, and sort of ponder it and, and feel depressed. That's not my um, uh, perspective, firstly, but also I, I think you have to look at things positively and look at your own agency in that. And my sense of agency is that I can lead and I can do um, and I, I've been trusted to do something that's really making a difference uh, in, in that important area. And so I, I can't do anything else but be optimistic in my view. Um, in terms of solar, what Solar Victoria is um, trying to do, the, the Victorian government, as uh, most governments in in state governments in, in Australia has committed to a net zero target by 2050. You know, there might be an argument about whether that's going to come quick enough or whether we need to do do more, but I think it's an argument on the right topic, um, which is how do you transition a, an economy, industry and a community to what is a, a net zero um, future? That's a very challenging task, but I think that sort of beacon um, drives me. Um, uh, the government's also uh, con- committed to a 50% renewable energy target by 30, uh, 2030, uh, which is absolutely necessary and w- will be about, um, uh, I think it's somewhere around 10 or 12% of, of, of that energy generation. And solar is making a bigger difference, particularly during the day, obviously on a day like today, mm. um, where everybody's turning their air conditioning on. You know, that's kind of prime solar weather, right? Because uh, we're generating power during the day um, and it's helping sort of even out that, that flow. There's a lot to do, uh, but certainly, you know, we've got a great mission, great support from the government and um, are going to continue that. So there's the, the infrastructure part and uh, also the way we live, the behavioural stuff. How do you, how do you see that kind of changing? And uh, are, are you pleased with the sort of progress that you see uh, on the street and in the conversations that you have with the public? Yeah, look, I came back, um, I, I was, uh, pleased to have uh, been able to go to um, to Paris in 2015 to see the um, uh, Paris Accord signed. And, and my sense coming back from that was uh, much of that discussion in Paris was about the technology and in an area like the environment sustainability is full of engineers, right? So we love talking about kit uh, and, um, you know, the engineering and what's possible. I think that was really necessary in Paris, but also my reflection was there wasn't enough conversation about how do you bring the community uh, with you. Um, I think that's certainly changed over the last few few years. Um, and uh, even if you look at, you know, the last few weeks, if you look at the bushfires in New South Wales, people are talking about that nexus between climate, fire, health, yep. 
climate change, what do we need to do? I, I think the, the narrative is, um, is absolutely shifting and it's shifting quickly. Um, and Australia probably lagged behind on that nexus between mm. climate change and health. And I think it's very much apparent now. Yeah. It seems to be that, um, the media that you get on days like today when it is 43 degrees and the, the just extreme weather patterns and the fluctuation does drive that kind of discussion and, and usually it is the positive discussion around wow this is actually happening now the maybe the immediacy bias like this is something that we actually need to tackle now and it's important and we can't just delay it is uh is certainly a factor you're absolutely right i mean mm. we're humans and and we have that sort of short-term temporal bias it's easy to put things off we've all got plenty of stuff on our plate and in our minds and you know how do you deal with that? One of the ways is to put put off what you can, uh, and climate change is one of those things. When when you say, well, it's not going to really hit until twenty thirty or forty fifty, you can put it off. And I, I think that was that sense in about you know the early two thousands where people knew it was important. They certainly accepted that it was happening, um, but could kind of defer that agency and that, that sense of responsibility. I don't think that that's possible anymore. Mm. You know, and certainly if you look at um, what the experts are saying and some of my colleagues. That sense of urgency that we have, that this is the critical decade, that means 10 years, right? 2020 to 2030, we have to do something about it or it's run away uh, and or it has the capacity to run away from us. And um, so that means that you can't put that off anymore. Like we have to have it, be having these conversations now. And what does a sort of uh, climate and maybe behaviourally optimised future look like? Is it sort of a matter of having, uh, you know, uh, greenery around? It's a, it's about having a battery at home. It's having solar panels. Is it driving an electric car with your keep cup sort of in, in the holder? Yeah. Well, look, uh, without being too, uh, I guess, futuristic about it and, and, and a bit unrealistic, I actually do think it's a better future. I think the capacity for the world, particularly in, in developing economies and countries, uh, to leapfrog some of the industrialization that um, Western economies like Australia um, have experienced and to learn from our mistakes in terms of the, the sort of reparation that's now required um, is is there. I, I absolutely believe that. And I think that that means that there are jobs, uh, there is um, economic development, there is growth, uh, and there is um, uh, people living better, more fulfilled lives as a result of doing something about sustainability and climate change from a you know sort of carbon neutral perspective. I think we haven't even begun to, th- to see the sort of innovation that is possible in a transition mm-hmm. to zero carbon. All it takes is goodwill and um, and I guess leadership mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, obviously government policy and, um, and regulation is important. But I, I think we're heading towards a better future if we get it right. Um, and even if you look at um, a state like Victoria, you know, the new jobs, the jobs of innovation and high tech will eventually converge around zero carbon, around renewable energy, uh, around digitization, you know, artificial intelligence, etc. It's not all going to be about the tech. It's going to have some human interface. But all of those things are heading in in, in a direction that I think is optimizing. Mm. I think it's very exciting. I think also consumer sentiment around the purchase of ethical goods is very exciting. So yeah. to sort of see the transition where, where it is maybe a bit piecemeal to get too excited about straws being replaced by metal straws or cups uh, being replaced by uh, glass uh, cups that are reused. I, I still think all these things put together in aggregate are sort of saying more about where people's mindset is at. Yeah, look, I think it's a complex piece. On the, on the one hand, I, I kind of look at uh, – 
sort of early adopters and and uh, what has happened there, and that's really important. But now I think it's time to mainstream, and I, I don't think we can say that you know the ethical product has to cost more or it has to look a bit shabbier. And you know, there's homes all over Melbourne that are covered in plywood because that's the kind of proxy for sustainability. Mm-hmm. I actually look at uh, you know really modern architecture, and I think. Well, why isn't that sustainable? Why isn't it sourced um, ethically? Why isn't it coming from the right places, constructed in the right ways? Why isn't it constructed and designed in a way that it can be dismantled, mm. reused? I, I think that's the future. And again, you know, I think that's full of opportunity and innovation. I think people are starting to uh, to think that way. Uh, but in in terms of um, consumer sentiment as as well. I, I've kind of flip-flop on, on this, but I've eventually come to the point that even the smallest pro-environmental behaviour, it's not going to save the world, but it actually is a step closer to what might. Yep. Does that make sense? So oh, when I, the, yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's a lot of sort of normative influencing as well. When you're, when you're around people, we know that we, we've judged very much what our friends do and, you know, what we do. And I think it's just that little thing, like you could be the one person in the office who brings their reusable cup in and then people ask you about it and they think they should do it. And, um, maybe it's about, you know, footwear choices or whatever it is. It could be anything, but just the act of, uh, doing it in isolation ha- has like a slow diffusion effect. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really, Good thing, and also what you said about industry before getting to a place where uh, ethical products are better and they stand on their own two feet and cost the same amount uh, instead of them being seen as a luxury item. Like I choose to pay more for things because they're better for the environment, which yeah. doesn't make any sense anymore. I don't think not in the current market, uh, not in the mainstream sense. But also, you're seeing the mainstream is shifting significantly. Yep. So the plastic straws is a great example, yep. not because people are obsessed with plastic straws, mm-hmm. but because of what that what the impact of that is, which is Firstly, consumer sentiment changing rapidly and nobody saw it coming, right? Um, and the fact that uh, suddenly a whole product category mm. can get wiped out and you can't take it. I um, uh, was somewhere the other day and I saw a plastic straw and you can't think, can't even see the plastic straw without now thinking about what <laughs> yeah. that means. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that shifted really quickly. And mm. so if you're, in the, if you're a plastics manufacturer or if you're in the catering industry or you're running a bar, you've got to start thinking twice now about whether you're going to put a straw out or whether you're going oh, to let you, people bring stainless steel straws. Absolutely. Yeah. Putting and, a paper cup out that's uh, a throwaway cup is very you're, – you're ready to be shunned. Yeah, at that I point. think so. It's a very dangerous uh, practice. Um, so where are we at with um, sort of solar uptake rates and um, the growth of solar in Victoria? Yeah, look, it, it's um, been going gangbusters. So we started in August of um, 2018. Um, and we've served more than 70,000 um, Victorians. Um, so uh, 70,000 Victorians have got solar. That might not have had it um, otherwise. Certainly the growth rates are indicating that we're accelerating the take-up. It's certainly very popular already. Uh, Victoria had, a, I think it's about 16% um, solar penetration across all freestanding homes, uh, which is probably lagging behind other, other states back in 2018. That's certainly shifting. So we're looking at 19% um, currently statewide, um, and that'll change. It'll go over 20% next calendar year. Uh, this will be a record um, year for solar. It's 70% um a 70% increase on the year before uh, and largely kind of the financial incentives and the rebates and the loans that Solar Victoria offers have made a big difference there. But what's been also really pleasing is the the nature of those customers. So, you know, predominantly um, 40% are in regional Victoria 
Um, they're not inner city hipster suburbs. Um, uh, I assumed or, it was just all Brunswick. It, it's not wrong. actually. Yep. Um, so if you look at the highest penetration rates in Victoria, so 40 to 50% in parts of rural Victoria, very small towns in the northeast and, um, and in the north, um, dairy farms, uh, lots of them have solar. Um, uh, and then if you look at um, sort of suburban Melbourne, it's largely around the outskirts. So southeast, southwest um, and the north. So our, um, our suburb, I think, um, with the highest take-up, of um, solar rebates for about three or four months running has been Tarnit in in Western Melbourne. Wow, and that's by a long um, shot. That's uh, a low socioeconomic. It's not the it's not um, the suburb that's doing the best overall economically. Uh, well, it, uh, it's a far, I, I think you're talking about key workers um, and people sure. who are who you know from time to time are going to struggle with bills, right? Sure. Um, and that's the nature of our program. Our program primarily is to save people money on electricity yeah. and give them back control. Yeah. What we're hearing from our customer insights is that they want that control you know uh and so we're able to give that uh to them half of our customers um post installation um say that they no longer worry about energy bills which is a fantastic thing so they can use that money for other things that's working and there's savings to be had absolutely and and they don't have to think about well you know can i turn the air conditioning on today's 45 degrees right do i have to think twice before i put that air conditioning on because of how much it's going to cost me and in the in the solar homes they're going to say well actually i can do something that's going to make me more comfortable it'll look after my family and it's not going to cost me the uh, cost me the earth, so to, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, so that's a fantastic thing. Also, two thirds of our customers earn less than a hundred thousand. So they are in a kind of, uh, a, a demographic that is struggling to pay yeah. energy bills. It's very interesting, but, I, but I guess it wouldn't shock me that maybe a wealthier demographic would care less about things around climate or environment necessarily. Um, I suppose I'll bring in a bit of personal story here. I, I know for a fact that my brother-in-law has done really well out of solar. He, he signed up a couple of years ago, was an extreme early adopter. I think he got the battery and he makes uh, about a grand per year just by having his, his battery there. So the power, mm. on top of all his power use, he's gaining. And I think he locked in at a very good tariff rate back then myself um where we are right now i'm an early adopter in everything i do uh, usually way too early (laughs) so it's not a great thing but um with the solar here i I was desperate to get an installation and got some quotes a few years ago and um i think our roof is just facing the wrong direction unfortunately maybe not Maybe not. I don't think so. If you've got a north-facing roof, yep. I, I think you'll do fine. But also, that, that you know, it, it's going to depend on on um, uh, on the profile and ha- when you use your energy, etc. Yep. And you know, uh, lots of people put them on east and west-facing roofs as well. Great. I'm just going to note twenty-three minutes ten. I'll let my wife know and uh, get get back on the quotes again because I'm desperate to get that that happening. And you know, we're with PowerShop, and um, I, I love being part of this system where I feel like we're on the cusp of significant change. Um, and I think as a as a society, people I talk to are getting solar. Well, they've had solar. They're getting solar. They're, they're talking about solar. And they're also talking about also how to make better choices around transportation, which I never thought would be a thing. So discussing getting a tram instead of driving or um, I, got, I, I got shunned the other day for driving to the station instead of walking, which I thought was really cool. It was great to experience that um, yeah. around, you know, how do we change our behaviour to think more about planet in every way? Yeah. I think there's something really interesting um, that's happening. So th- th- we have rebates for um, solar PV. Uh, we've got rebates for landlords and renters, solar hot water, and then batteries as well. Um, uh, batteries is, uh, you know, starting to grow. So I think about 350 people have accessed rebates for the batteries. It's about $5,000. Um, so about half of an average um, system. But it's really interesting to look at why they're buying. 
And I think we've moved beyond the sort of people that are sitting there calculating the solar, working it out, working out the ROI is six and a half years and when are they going to pay it back Mm. and all of that sort of stuff to people just think it's the right thing to do or it's the smart thing to do. And they no longer make those, they don't do those calculations in their head. It's just the default. Yeah. They think that new homes in particular need solar. Eventually they'll be thinking that they need batteries um, and probably be uh, already starting to think about an electric car as mm. more of those coming on in the market that are at a, a sort of affordable price point. And when, when, I mean, that's an interesting one because I think for me, I dr- I'm driving a car now that's uh, my dad's old car. It's about 12, 12 years old and it's, um, it's beautiful, but it's sort of probably reaching the end of its natural life soon. But I, I would love to think that maybe my next car could be an electric electric car, but I think maybe the tech and the price points are still a bit far away and not enough competition. Do you see it sort of being realistic as a mass market option in the next decade? Or so? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the only way that we'll head. I mean, I think there is some discussion around hydrogen, but I think the future is electric, mm-hmm. um, which means that you've got to start planning for what that future looks like. Um, so from a, a personal perspective, in terms of your household, how are you going to generate that power? Because you're going to need more power to um, to, um, to power a car. Um, and how is that going to be sustainable? But also from a grid perspective, um, not only how are we going to accommodate what could be excess or extra load on the energy generation system, and it's great that will have to come from renewable energy, but how do you optimise it? And that's the thing that is really exciting um, to me is how do you optimise cars as batteries um, so that they're charging and discharging at the right times that they kind of even out? Um, and uh, there's been some great work uh, by um, Infrastructure Victoria done in the last year or so around future scenarios for electric vehicles. And, uh, you know, probably the worst case scenario is that we all just use electric cars in the way that we use petrol cars. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have to start thinking about how we optimise them, how they're charged, how we use autonomous vehicles, where they port back to, how do we share vehicles, that sort of thing. Because, you know, with a growing population, a city of 5 million people, everybody having an electric car uh, is going to uh, be a pretty difficult thing to accommodate, I'd imagine. And maybe that's where you go a bit back into sort of uh, helicopter decision-making mode. You're trying to mediate between being in the clouds and being in the blades of grass, you know, Excellent. seeing the detail versus seeing the bigger picture. Uh, you're wanting to encourage an environment where um, everyone has the same individualistic ability to get around using their own vehicle or do you invest that money instead in public transport so more people – it's very interesting. I, I, th- I find it a fascinating sort of city planning conversation. Yeah, and I, I mean, this is what, what cuts across. And I, I think uh, Australia is unique in the sense of our capacity to generate mm. renewable energy, our capacities uh, around hydrogen, which there's lots of discussion around now, uh, but also we're very early adopters. If you think of cable TV, if you think, and you know, of um, satellites, video recorders, mobile phones, incredibly early adopters and very quickly take up uh, universal um, adoption of technology. I think that's where we're heading for solar, batteries and vehicles. Over what time frame and how we do it and how we orchestrate it is going to be challenging, but I think uh, it will be the case that consumers say, well, this is what I want. Mm. How are you going to make that happen for me? And I think there's plenty of thought being put into that by government, by by industry, um, you know, by the grid operator about how do you actually accommodate that and over what time frame, what do the settings need to look like? How much time do you spend thinking about other forms of energy and are there other sort of key energy? We, we got as part of Williamson to visit the, um, the Hepburn wind uh, generator, which is quite exciting and some community renewable projects. Do you spend much time thinking to or speak, thinking about or speaking with stakeholders in other alternative energy areas? Yeah, probably less in this role, but yep. certainly within Sustainability Victoria, we knew the guys at Hepburn Wind mm. very well. Um, we did a lot of projects and um, I'm very inspired by 
people that um, work in com- the community energy sector, um, so both solar, wind, um, alternative technologies, but predominantly solar and wind, uh, but that are community-owned and different business models around that. Um, certainly there are people, particularly disadvantaged people or renters, who are locked out currently of uh, most uh, programs. We're trying to make a play in that area with um, with rebates for renters. Uh, but even still, if they're living in an apartment, that's going to be challenging. Yeah. Uh, and so how do you look at looking at um, – how do you use community assets, for instance, and contribute back to the grid locally or to, to local consumers? Or how do people buy shares in something that's off-site and remote uh, but is a clean source of energy and then they benefit – um, from that. Would that be a way to sort of incentivise? I mean, because obviously when you set your target at 1 million Victorian homes, you can't have all of them because they're rentals or body corporates or whatever else. Can, are there ways to sort of incentivise body corporates and sort of bigger apartment buildings to take the initiative and do that on their own? I, I'm sure there are. That's yeah. not currently part of our um, program, although there's plenty of people advocating yep. um, for that. And I think those business models probably need a bit more work to to be established. But there are some exciting developments both in Victoria and in, um, in New South Wales around community-owned facilities, um, uh, virtual power plants and microgrids that are community-owned or that are uh, enabling um, uh, peer-to-peer transfer of, um, of energy and credits and that sort of thing so that people can benefit uh, more broadly. I think that uh, that's a pretty exciting part of the, uh, the transition. Let me pivot slightly now. I'm conscious that I have wanted for a while to ask you about your own leadership journey and um, maybe I'll frame it the first question this way what do you know now about leadership that you didn't know when you sort of commenced your sort of higher level um, duties as a leader look it's going to sound trite trite but um, for me it is about um, genuinely being yourself and and recognizing in yourself um, that you have that capability and it took me a long time to get to that uh, point Um, I think it's the only way to lead or certainly the only way to lead effectively is to be authentic Um, and that means understanding yourself what are your drivers what are your values what are those things that um, get on your nerves that make you short Um, understanding all of those things that self-awareness I think makes you the most effective leader that you can be it took me a long time to work that out Um, and that way of thinking about my career about you know this is all about making a difference is certainly something that didn't come naturally uh to me a few years ago i put put a lot of effort into understanding and learning about myself in addition to you know understanding management and leadership and and all of those those other things and, and i think authenticity stands out very strongly in, in, in your answer and um just looking at your journey it's not surprising um you, you've obviously been somebody who balances very well uh heart and head Hmm. Would you sort of agree with that? Well, I, I think that's a real compliment. Yeah, I, I mean, it's nice to hear it from somebody else. I, I probably wouldn't have put it in the same words. You're much more articulate than I am on that that issue. But I, I think that sort of uh, notion of the true north that Bill George writes a, a, about certainly resonates uh, with me. And uh, for me, and you know, uh, obviously, humans of purpose as a as a podcast title just um, uh, really resonates with me as well because I love that sort of notion of. Um, uh, leading with your heart as well, and 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 I'm a bit of a heart on on my sleeve kind of person as well. And I think um, you know there's some, there is certainly something about people who are driven and have a calling, and they answer the call. And so we talk a lot of you know in Williamson about answering the call as well. But uh, he, you know, opening yourself up to listen to and really hear the call and then answer it, I think is quite an important part of that growth journey. Yeah, and uh, I think it probably takes a, a bit of time to work out. And uh, I think you've got to try some things and not get them right as well because that's part of learning uh, as well. But when something, particularly in the areas that I'm interested in, 
almost everything is complex. Almost everything has been tried and not worked in the past, or somebody's tried it and uh, and and not made it through, or whatever. Um, I've kind of seen that as if those opportunities present themselves, I lean into them rather than um, than walk away. And you know, you kind of take a risk on in doing that. But I think I've always been rewarded like that. I'm a runner as well, and um, you know, a, a personal trainer that I worked with for a, a while said, you know, as you get to the hill, you actually have to push harder rather than sort of slowing down or, you know, how am I going to get through? You've got to push harder. I kind of see that as a, a bit of a theme in my career um, as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, you split your time obviously between uh, being CEO of Solar Victoria, you're also chair at Info Exchange. Okay. Maybe can you speak a little bit about Info Exchange and also um, what it's like to sort of, you know, go from just say you've had a busy day at, C- at the CEO at Solar Victoria to step into a different kind of maybe more helicopter kind of perspective in your role at Info Exchange. What that's like? Sure. So Info Exchange has been around for thirty years. It's a, a very successful social enterprise that I'm really proud of. A national organisation with um, a New Zealand footprint as well. Last year we merged with Connecting Up, which had a very similar ethos. Um, and essentially, um, it's a social enterprise that is uh, self-funded through providing IT services to the NGO sector, building capability in the NGO sector. Uh, and then the second is around um, uh, advocacy and thought leadership around digital inclusion. Um, and we've got a range of corporate partnerships um, uh, in relation to that. One of the uh, biggest uh, products that we've got is a product called Ask Easy, uh, which is effectively an online platform that allows people at risk uh, to connect to services. Um, and they can do that with unmeted access on, you know, one of the Telcos, Telstra's um, uh, network. All of that was put together through corporate partnerships, but, um, you know, the brains and the thought was uh, within Info Exchange. Um, it's very much an, part of the ethos that it's a social enterprise and, and the founder, Andrew Marr, kind of uh, was is very uh, visionary as a, as a social entrepreneur and he saw that you can't be an advocate, you can't be effective if you're reliant on grants and um you know, government handouts or anything like that. It's just not a sustainable model. Um, and so that vision, I think, and that sort of ethos around social justice through technology, but also not being dependent on on grants, uh, is something that very much runs through the organisation now. It's um, a $20 million organisation, certainly much bigger and more complex than, than when I first um, uh, got there um, almost 10 years ago now. But I, I'm really proud of the association. How do I do it? I actually love it. Um, even when I'm tired, I get there and I've... I kind of have to shift my thinking because I'm not a CEO. We've got a fantastic CEO, David um, Spriggs, who's the CEO there. And I get to take that sort of balcony view there because it's not my role to manage the organisation. Uh, I'm there because I'm the chair of the board. I manage the board. Uh, and as a, as a, a, a director, um, we obviously have very different obligations mm. to the organisation in terms of governance and risk and um, brand, et cetera. And how do you think, I mean, do you feel as though that's something that really rounds out your leadership um, view or uh, lens or experience sort of having two of those roles one sort of very much as a hands-on and the other one is more of a maybe mentor or guide absolutely i love it yep. love it love the um, combination of those things love the diversity in it uh, i love that it's a very different business um, i worked many many years ago 25 years ago or so uh, in the NGO sector as a, as a community lawyer and was very much reliant on some of the services that Info Exchange still provides around connecting people to, um, to vacancies, um, so, uh, so that they can be housed.
housed and homed and um, have services and food, etc. Um, and so I kind of like that connection. Uh, but for me, it's also about, you know, where can I add value? And, and um, for that, it, it's actually more around the governance um, and, the, and the strategic direction of the organisation. And, and I do like that different way of thinking and uh, it's almost a luxury. Um, I'm on a couple of other boards as well. Some of them are advisory, some of them are governance boards. Um, but I, I, I do really like that diversity. And so with such a um, lot going on, how do you sort of get the, the mental relief and clarity? Is that very much through the running? It's a bit through the running. So I, I do, I have maintained that. Uh, I, I wish I'd started earlier. Like I only started running at about 30, 37. Um, but I do like, it, it's kind of uh, quite ritualistic, you know, um, Sunday mornings, I'm out there. I'd like to run a couple of times during the week. Sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't. But the Sunday is, is very much a part of my routine. Um, and I like the, the time to think. Uh, I, I like the physical exertion as well. Um, but for me, it's that kind of time uh, to just ground myself and stabilise myself as well. Um, and, you know, obviously I've, I've got uh, – I spend a lot of time with my family as well and getting that balance right. Self, family, community and work uh, is sometimes a challenge, but, yeah. Are there people out there who are sort of inspiring you or that you're watching at the moment and thinking, oh, that's someone who I, I could learn something from and, you know, help help drive me on my journey a little bit? Oh, there's a bunch of them, but look, uh, just because it's so top of mind and because it's been so vicious uh, with Greta Thunberg, um, that that's someone who inspires me. Her youth, her determination, the way that she speaks, how articulate, um, you know, the, the fact that she's a, a, she's um, Time Woman of the Year or Person of the Year, um, she's being attacked by the President of the United States. I mean, what's going on here that um, someone who should otherwise be really inspiring, um, young, having a crack, doing what is absolutely right, like history will judge us for not listening better, I think, um, and for, for the way that this is all playing out. But I, I find her really inspiring. Well said. And and so what are you most excited about or looking forward to as we move into 2020, um, both on a sort of uh, work at Solar Victoria front and also a personal front? Is there anything that you're looking at working on or to build up? Yeah, look, um, for me, there's a couple of things happening in my, in my family life with all three of my girls going into high school. That's a, that's a big milestone for us. Um, and, uh, you know, supporting them through that. One of them is in year 12. One of them's in year seven at the same school. Um, and, uh, my wife's just about to embark on a career as an interior designer as well and, and very much has sustainability as part of her, uh, kind of brand as well. Um, having all of those things in place as well as um, just succeeding professionally uh, are pretty important to me for next year. Uh, in terms of Solar Victoria, look, we'll continue to grow the presence of Solar Victoria. We'll continue to support Victorians. We're very much wanting to um, promote batteries uh, as well as our solar hot water program. And I, I think we've got this nut to crack still on landlords and renters. So we've got um, 50,000 rebates in, in landlords and, and renters for solar PV, but making that what model work and how do you make it attractive uh, to both landlords and, and tenants when there's a split incentive is going to be something that's a real challenge. And probably there's there's um, a piece that I've been really excited about coming into Solar Victoria is that it's not just about the, the retail aspect, which is the rebates, it's also about the industry development piece. So how do we use and leverage um, uh, you know, what is a very generous $1.2, $1.3 billion um, program. How do we leverage that um, to enhance the grid and to prepare the grid for the future, for a future that I think is um, uh, entirely renewable and depends a lot on batteries and is obviously servicing vehicles and all of that sort of stuff. 
um, but also how do we encourage and nurture new businesses, new technologies within Victoria? And there's some great capabilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned PowerShop, for instance, yeah. uh, but there's other companies um, out there that we interact with on a, on a daily basis who are really exciting, really thinking about energy in a different way, thinking about disruptive business practices, et cetera, largely tech-driven, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that's really exciting. So we want to work with those guys around, you know, how do you, how do you encourage businesses like that to set up and flourish um, in Victoria? That's very exciting. And, and just let me backtrack to running a little bit because I'm fascinated by it. I only recently started and I'm not much um, younger than the 37 you were when you started. And uh, I'm pretty bad at it, but I'm, I think I'm getting better. But do you find it interesting that it's it's such a hard thing to work on and it's like it's so incremental that, you know, really, really small percentage changes to anything can result in quite good gains over time? Yeah, it took me a long time to get into that uh, rhythm. The other thing that I'd been told by my dad, and which is the worst advice ever, is that you should breathe through your nose while you're running. And I couldn't do it. Yeah. Couldn't do it. I don't know how other people run, but I have to breathe through my mouth. It took me about 10 years to work that out. Um, and so that's my first rule. But the, then the second is, I think, is just to keep at it. And you're right. Um, and, and set yourself the, the goals. So I, I worked um, – it was actually just a workplace health program that started me running. Um, we started in a boot camp. I started running 1K when I could couldn't run around the block, you know, ran 2Ks, then 5Ks. I, you know, I did the, the run for the kids and the Melbourne um, runs at 5, 10, 14, and I've done a half marathon as well uh, a few years ago. And I, I couldn't have contemplated that 10 years ago. Like, it, it, you know, you've got to work at it, but I think you've got to find that groove and it's largely a mental groove about why am I doing this and what am I enjoying about it? Um, and um, I, I think the mental aspect of just being out, I run a lot out in nature, you know, so out by the river that I live nearby or in parks and things like that, and that means a lot to me as well is just connecting with nature. So you think it's definitely important to get off the treadmill and the sweaty uh, box of a gym and get outside? I, I'm not great with treadmills. Yeah, like yeah. That, That's even harder. And, and like you find even um, when you're doing those long runs as well, it's actually – it's not the people that you're, you're not even competing really. Actually, I find it cathartic that you're running with people and you can hear their footsteps as you're running. Kind of inspires me to go harder. Um, but I, I've, when you're getting towards the end of a very long uh, run, it's actually your own mind that's working against you. And I think marathon runners do the same. Not that I'm one of that, those, but I think it, you've got to overcome that mental barrier. And so that takes some effort. And I, I actually quite enjoy that. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I'm certainly going to take away from our chat today is sort of the beauty of working on intractable hard problems because they're the ones that are worthwhile. <laughs> Why not? I mean, if it was easy, other people would have done it. Yeah, yeah. A beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for popping in, Stan. Um, if people did want to sort of learn more about you and the, the great work that you're doing in Connect, um, how can they best do that? Yeah, so look, um, Solar Victoria, solar.vic.gov.au. Uh, Info Exchange has a really uh, strong web presence and social media, so you can look them up. That's um, I-N-F-O-X-C-H-A-N-G-E. Uh, and, um, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and, and uh, Twitter. Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 